1669, Henry Morgan's buccaneering exploits had yielded hundreds of thousands of pounds sterling worth of loot, most of which had been spent on drunken rampages in Jamaica. This influx of money had enabled the development of the colony in many ways and made him extremely popular with its residents as well as its leadership. Governor Thomas Modiford was his close friend and ally, and Charles II, who also got a cut of the loot, indirectly encouraged Morgan while officially reprimanding him in response to Spanish complaints. You're listening to Rejects and Revolutionaries with Sarah Tinsalvola, a podcast tracing the origins of America from the Tudor era to the 20th century. Hi, everyone. Sorry for the delay, but if you follow me on social media, you'll know that this is in part because I just got done visiting a couple places which are extremely relevant to our podcast, specifically Providence Island and Barbados, with a stop in Cartagena. And while I was there, I created some little bits of content which I'll be posting to Facebook and Twitter over the next few weeks so you'll get to see exactly where some of this stuff happened. So if that interests you, please head over there. Also, if you've been wondering when we'll be back in mainland North America, the answer is next episode, as we start the history of Carolina. But that also doesn't mean that we're going to fully leave our Caribbean stuff behind, as you'll see. And now, on with the story. By 1669, Henry Morgan was easily the most famous pirate in at least the English-speaking world. His exploits had been more than just borderline illegal. England was officially at peace with Spain for the first time in a century, and it was at war with France, which had emerged as England's leading competitor in the Caribbean. Spain, thanks in large part to privateering efforts, was no longer strong enough to support its own empire, much less challenge other countries' attempts to settle the area. Plenty of Spain's possessions were sparsely inhabited, and its strength was clearly waning. And meanwhile, France had pulled the Dutch into a second war with England in an attempt to weaken England's position in the area. French ships sailed into English ports and refused to salute. French governors paid Carib tribes to slaughter English colonists. And France had earned a reputation among people in Barbados and the Leewards for being the most aggressive and hostile of countries toward the English. Spain and England had also signed a peace agreement in which Spain had conceded England's right to own Caribbean colonies. But despite all of this, Morgan had sought privateering commissions from Modiford to plunder Spanish cities, citing the most dubious of threats. And Modiford had given them, both because Spain was still the number one enemy in the hearts of many English people, and also because Spanish colonies did still send plenty of gold and other valuables back to the mother country. 
Charles II slapped both on the wrist for these exploits, but he also knighted them both, and he gave them both titles. Modiford remained governor, and Morgan was named Lieutenant General of Jamaica and Admiral of its fleet. Charles gave him well over 4,000 pounds, as well as one of the nicest ships that New England had ever built, which he proceeded to immediately and accidentally sink. At this point, piracy was so far removed from the Puritan religious motives which had once characterized people like Drake, that French and even some Irish Catholics had joined English attacks on the Spanish. Of course, there were some Irish pirates who made their home in Havana and specifically targeted the English, but the point is, the religious lines had been blurred. Piracy was, first and foremost, about the lifestyle and the money, and this was true for everyone from the average pirate to Morgan and Modiford to the king himself. These actions did indirectly protect Jamaica from French attack, though, because a privateering hub that was fundamentally English meant that there were a fair number of armed ships available to defend the island at any given time. Beyond that passive defense, though, pirates did little for the cause of England's Anglo-Dutch war efforts, the brunt of which were borne by Barbados. And for Morgan in particular, success had begat success, and as his reputation grew, so did his fleet because aspiring pirates from all nations went out of their way to serve with him. This even included France, though there was certainly more tension in those cases. Morgan had become a hero in the eyes of the English, both in Jamaica and in England itself. As his situation had improved, he'd also immersed himself more and more in the excesses of pirate life, and he attempted raids with greater and greater potential rewards. In 1669, Morgan's target was Maracaibo, in modern Venezuela. For the most part, the story of this raid is pretty similar to the ones we've discussed before. Morgan's men approached in canoes and took the town's two forts without much trouble. And soon, they approached an empty and deserted town whose inhabitants had all fled into the woods. They spent three weeks tracking people down and torturing them until they either died or gave up their possessions, and then they went to Gibraltar. I've posted a picture of this map to Twitter, Facebook, and the website, but Gibraltar was on the same lake as Maracaibo, just further inland. The lake is connected to the Caribbean Sea via a small strait, so you can get into the lake using seafaring ships and then sail around it. And in Gibraltar, it was more of the same. On arrival, they found an empty town whose inhabitants had all fled. Actually, almost all, because they did find one mentally disabled man who hadn't managed to get out in time. They caught him, they put him to the rack, and he screamed, do not torture me anymore, but come with me and I will show you my goods and riches. So Morgan and his men let him down, 
and the man guided them to a run-down hovel with a couple of earthenware dishes. And there he showed them where he had buried the three pieces of eight he owned. Disgusted, they tried to get more information out of him, and in the course of this interrogation, he claimed to be the brother of the governor of Maracaibo. So they tortured him to death using the rack while touching burning palm leaves to his face, and then they dumped his body in the woods. There are a lot of other individual torture stories in the accounts of Morgan's adventures, but that one stuck out to me. As they continued their search, they found a couple of other poor people, including a peasant who they hanged in front of his daughters, and a slave who they promised a share of the plunder and liberty in Jamaica in exchange for joining them. The slave agreed and guided them to a group of Spanish people who they took prisoner, and then to ensure the slave couldn't change his mind, they ordered him to kill some of the prisoners while others watched, and he did. And then, again, the pirates spent a few weeks finding, torturing, killing, raping, and pillaging. They returned to Maracaibo with a boat full of prisoners and ransomed both Maracaibo and Gibraltar, demanding war money to stop them from burning the towns to the ground. But that's when things took a turn for the unexpected. In Maracaibo, An old man told them that a Spanish naval fleet was waiting at the entrance to the lake, which meant that Morgan's was trapped. This fleet had been sent from Spain by the king to deal with Morgan after Charles II had repeatedly failed to stop his activities. The Spanish had three ships, and while Morgan had more, most were mere boats in comparison. Even Morgan's own ship, the one that he had stolen from the French, had half the number of guns as just one of the Spanish ones. So Morgan was not only trapped, he was hopelessly overpowered. Escape was impossible. Fighting back was impossible. The only advantage he really had was hostages which he might be able to use to negotiate, or at least buy time. So Morgan opened the negotiations. He said he would burn Maracaibo to the ground if he weren't allowed to leave. The Spanish admiral, Don Alonso, responded that if Morgan didn't free every single person and return all the treasure, he would kill every single one of Morgan's pirates. And Morgan countered that. In exchange for free passage, he would free all the Spanish and Portuguese prisoners, along with half the slaves, and he would leave without doing further damage to the town. Alonso told Morgan that those terms were so ridiculous that it would be dishonorable for him to take them. He gave Morgan two days to surrender before being attacked and hunted down. And that was enough for Morgan. His men spent the two days gathering pitch, tar, and brimstone from Maracaibo, as well as other flammable things. He found African drums and painted them black to look like cannons, and then he moved all women, gold, and merchandise into the different ships. 
One of the Maracaibo slaves saw Morgan doing this and rushed to tell Don Alonso that Morgan was making a fire ship. But Alonso blew him off, saying that he couldn't imagine that the pirates had either the intelligence or the tools to do something like that. The next day, as the sun rose, Morgan and Alonso's fleets faced each other, and each sailed slowly forward. At the head of Morgan's fleet was the ship that he had spent two days preparing, and that one started to inch away from the rest. As it reached Alonso's ship, it burst into flames and took the Spanish one with it. By the time Alonso realized that the slave had been right, it was too late. Fire had spread, and his men either jumped in the water and swam to shore, or were trapped inside the burning vessel. And with that, the Spanish fleet collapsed. The second one rushed toward the fort to enforce it, and its sailors then destroyed their own ship to prevent it from being captured by Morgan. Morgan did actually capture the last one. Surviving Spanish sailors jumped into the lake and swam to the fort, prepared to die fighting rather than be taken prisoner. Morgan was still trapped, though. He still couldn't sail his fleet by the fort without it being destroyed. He still had his prisoners, though, and he threatened to hang them from the sides of his ships if he wasn't granted free passage, but Alonso refused. It looked like Morgan was going to have to attack the fort. So in plain sight of the Spanish, he sent rowboats full of pirates to the fort, and then he waited. Alonso watched, anticipating an attack, and moved all the fort's weapons to the place that the pirates would most likely try to scale the walls. All the cannons, all the muskets now faced away from Morgan's fleet and toward the land. And with all the weapons moved, Morgan waited for nightfall and quietly slipped out of the harbor. The rowboats full of pirates hadn't actually emptied themselves out at the shore. They'd simply hidden their human cargo for the return to trick the Spanish. And Morgan was free, now with a Spanish naval vessel at the head of his fleet. Alonso had had an overwhelming advantage and every opportunity to win. If Alonso had listened to the slave, Morgan wouldn't have won. If Alonso had accepted hostage deaths and simply exterminated the pirates without negotiating, Morgan wouldn't have won. If Alonso had kept even a couple of the fort's cannons facing the entrance to the bay that he was supposed to protect, Morgan might not have won. And yet, Morgan not only survived, but profited from Alonso's efforts and sailed out of Lake Maracaibo stronger than he had ever been. Morgan's fleet returned to Jamaica to wild celebration. They spent the money, and Morgan planned what would be his biggest venture ever. For this, he recruited every pirate he could find in either Jamaica or Tortuga, the French-run pirate base off of Hispaniola. This, I must emphasize, meant that he had a huge portion of French sailors in his fleet 
who wanted a share of the spoils, but didn't particularly like the English or their leader. Fully assembled, Morgan's fleet stocked up on corn and pigs with a minor raid near Cartagena, and after that was divided, they sailed for Providence Island. They retook Providence from the Spanish in a way that was almost bloodless. After landing and approaching the island's town, Morgan gave an ultimatum ordering the Spanish to surrender or be slaughtered. In response, the Spanish governor agreed to surrender, but asked for a completely fake battle beforehand so that he could preserve his reputation. Morgan agreed, stipulating that if even one pirate was so much as injured, he would not just kill but torture all the Spanish, and the governor accepted these terms. The two sides spent a couple of hours shooting blanks at each other, the Spanish surrendered, and Morgan took them prisoner. He would drop them off at Portobello on the way to his next destination, Panama City. Much like Cartagena was the storehouse and port for all the gold from what's now Colombia and the surrounding countries, Panama was the port for all the gold shipped from Peru. So if anything, it was even more extravagant, and unlike Cartagena, it wasn't surrounded by a wall. This was because it was so far away from the Caribbean coast that it didn't seem necessary. Panama City was on Panama's Pacific coast instead, and that provided its protection from pirates. Morgan's men would have to land at a Caribbean town in the area and make their way across Panama by some combination of river and land. As their landing point, Morgan chose the Fort of Chagres near modern Cologne. He stayed in Providence while he sent his second-in-command to take that fort, and in Providence, Morgan recruited some guides for their trek, as well as dismantling the island's defenses so that if the Spanish retook it, they couldn't keep it as easily. This worked, and Providence would then remain in English hands until Queen Victoria gave it to Columbia. Morgan left just one fort standing, the original Fort Warwick, built by the first English settlers four decades earlier. But he threw all its ordnance into the sea so that no one but him could find it again. And meanwhile, when Morgan's men arrived in Chagres, they found the Spanish prepared for an attack. Cartagena knew that Morgan was planning something thanks to his food-gathering raid and had warned potential targets. After a vicious battle, Morgan's fleet had lost over half its people, but the Spanish had fared worse. Only 30 of the original 314 Spanish survived, and of them, 20 were wounded. And when Morgan received news of the victory, he sailed from Providence with the rest of his fleet. On August 18, 1671, Morgan and 1,200 men 
rowed in 32 canoes from Chagres toward Panama City. They didn't get very far, and they couldn't find as much food as they anticipated. The food that they'd previously plundered had already been eaten in the weeks preparing for the attack, and it wouldn't have fit in the canoes anyway. They had always supplemented with food from the area that they were plundering, and yet there was none to be found. The next day, the majority had to leave their canoes behind too because the river was too dry. And it became clear that the Spanish had actually stripped the land of food to slow the pirates' march. It was only after eight days of walking through the jungle with virtually nothing to eat, followed by spies and ambushed multiple times, that they arrived at Panama City. There, they found cattle, horses, and donkeys, which they slaughtered and ate, and then they approached the city. The governor was ready for them, though, and however Morgan's men tried to approach, they met armed resistance. And the Spanish fought hard. So did the pirates, though, not least because they were now stranded eight days from their ships. That meant that for both sides, the options were to win or die, and that should give you some idea of how viciously they fought. Ultimately, it was the Spanish who were forced to retreat and regroup. The pirates found some stragglers and shot them, and they found some priests and shot them, and then finally they found someone who gave them some information about the city's defenses. But even though Morgan used this information to plot what seemed to be the safest entry into the city, the Spanish were prepared again and killed a huge number of his men. The Spanish had hidden as much of their merchandise as they could, but there were still several warehouses full of valuable silks, cloths, and linen left behind. Morgan seized a beached ship and ordered his men to set fire to the city's most important buildings. And the city began to burn. Sources sympathetic to Morgan argue that the Spanish set fire to their own city to prevent Morgan from taking it, but whichever happened, the end result was the same. Panama City, as it was, was wiped off the map. The modern city of that name actually sits on a different location from the old one. It was that thoroughly destroyed. When the flames subsided, the pirates searched the ruins for any precious metals they could find, and then they did their usual taking and torturing of prisoners with the usual effectiveness. And in fact, they did it more brutally than ever before because of the fight which had just happened. They regularly cut off noses, ears, and tongues in addition to the eye-gouging, face-burning, and racking that we're already so familiar with. They targeted religious people more than anyone else and more than ever, and Morgan's raping and drinking, usually more discreet than that of his men, became the most flamboyant of all. And after a few weeks, he and his men were ready to head back to their ships. They marched with dozens of prisoners, both for ransom and to deter attacks, as well as to help carry the treasure. On the way back, though, 
Morgan ordered his men to swear that they hadn't taken anything from themselves that wasn't disclosed to the group, and he commanded that each of his surviving men, himself included, be searched thoroughly to make sure that not so much as a sixpence had been concealed from the group. This wasn't standard procedure, and it especially infuriated the French, who already had a tense relationship with their English colleagues. As the last part of their raid, Morgan sent a ship to order Portobello to pay a ransom for the Chagres fort, and Portobello said that he could do whatever he wanted because they weren't going to give the pirates so much as a farthing. So Morgan destroyed the fort too. The big problem, though, came when it was time to divide the spoils. Morgan's men had gotten the bulk of the valuables in one of Spain's wealthiest cities, and a majority of them had been killed, which should have meant that the survivors ended up with even more extravagant amounts of wealth. Instead, they ended up with just 200 pieces of eight each. All of that work, all of that bloodshed, for about 50 pounds sterling. The English complained, and Morgan ignored them, but the French started preparing a mutiny. And in response to this, Morgan loaded his own ship with the really valuable stuff and snuck away without warning anyone but his closest companions. He left the rest, including all of the French, without so much as the necessary food to sustain them on their return to Jamaica or Tortuga. According to a legend, which persists on Providence Island to this day, Morgan stopped there on his way back to Jamaica to hide the treasure from that ship. And frankly, the reports of his return to Jamaica don't include the kind of over-the-top wealth that he had taken. It would also have been extremely difficult to find treasure on that island if it were hidden by someone familiar with its geography, which Morgan was. All that to say that, well, we all like to believe those stories, right? And it's not impossible. When Morgan returned to Jamaica, Modiford's council gave him a formal vote of thanks, but things were about to change. After Morgan's defeat of the Spanish fleet at Maracaibo, the Spanish king had protested to Charles II and demanded a new peace treaty. This treaty explicitly stated that neither country's ships could appear in the other's ports without explicit permission. There could be no piracy because English ships would not be allowed anywhere near Spanish ports unless the Spanish invited them. And if one showed up, Spain had the right to assume it was a pirate ship and attack. And this wasn't just an idle threat. Spain fully intended to do this, and when the treaty was signed, they did. They sank every English ship in Spanish waters without permission, slaughtering crews assuming that they were pirates. All of this had happened after Maracaibo, 
and news of the treaty arrived in Jamaica along with explicit orders that Morgan stop his piracy just a couple of days after Morgan had left for Cartagena. That timing was suspiciously convenient, and Modiford could also have intercepted Morgan's men at either Cartagena or Providence Island or even Panama to tell him that the attack was off, and yet he didn't. So in short, months after England and Spain had signed a treaty which explicitly forbade privateering, Henry Morgan had wiped one of the biggest cities in the Spanish Empire off of the map with Modiford's permission and returned to an official commendation from the governor, even though the governor knew full well that the attack had been wholly illegal. And that couldn't be ignored. So soon after Morgan returned to Jamaica, Thomas Lynch arrived in the colony with orders to replace Modiford as governor, to send both him and Morgan back to England to stand trial, and to put a stop to buccaneering no matter what it took. And Lynch was dedicated to his mission. He had actually been in Jamaica before as part of Cromwell's Western design, and he had remained on the island. Modiford's corruption had pushed him to leave, and he had been vocal about his disapproval of the governor. So now, Lynch saw in his orders from Charles II a chance to return Jamaica to its original course. No piracy, just agriculture and industry. A new and greater Barbados. But Morgan's men had been sending hundreds of thousands or even millions of pounds through what had previously been the most horrifically awful place in English America. He had recruited the people who had gotten the short end of the stick, and he'd given them lives that they couldn't have dreamed of. Yes, there was excess in debauchery and unimaginable amounts of cruelty, but besides the fact that some people actually enjoyed that, the result of this was that Jamaica had been transformed. There was money to be made, not just in piracy, but in catering to pirate whims and appetites. Bars, inns, brothels, all could yield a healthy income. People with a little bit of foresight and the ability to look the other way could build comfortable lives. And under Modiford, Jamaica had actively catered to and built itself up for this type of person. Modiford had also led by example in using some of the money to build up new industries and a diverse economy, not just sugar, but also salt, cocoa, and pimento. And for Thomas Lynch, all of that meant that the colony's population had absolutely no interest in cooperating with him or returning to his vision. Lynch granted pirates sugar plantations and high-salary positions in the Royal Navy to entice them away from a life of plunder. He offered them full pardon and indemnity as long as they cooperated with him and stopped buccaneering, but they refused, turning away from pirate adventures and toward sugar farming wasn't as appealing a prospect as he had hoped. Neither was turning from plunder to salaried work. 
Desperation and ideology might have motivated some pirates initially, but again, it was lifestyle and money that kept them in that line of work. There were some pirates who plundered a couple times and used the money to go on to build reputable lives, but they were very few and very far between. Lynch was offering them something that they could have bought after one successful raid, but had chosen not to, and their decision hadn't changed. In one 1672 example of Lynch's thwarted efforts, the governor had ordered the trial of a pirate who had taken a Spanish ship and murdered its crew. But Thomas Modiford's son told the jury not to convict him. The pirate was released, and within an hour, he was drinking at a bar with his own jury. Lynch had him re-arrested, though this was itself illegal, and after a second trial he was hanged, but his death was as much regretted as if he had been as pious and innocent as one of the primitive martyrs. Lynch tried to explain to Jamaicans that the English should fear the French, who were actually engaged in privateering against them at this point, rather than the Spanish, but no one listened. At one point, he found the governor and bishop of Santa Marta, a city in modern Colombia, who had been taken prisoner and brought to Jamaica, and he returned them to their home. And Jamaicans would not allow Lynch to arrest Modiford or Morgan. He ended up having to trick them both in different ways. He invited Modiford on board a ship for a dinner party and arrested him there, while he effectively carried Morgan out of his bed in the middle of the night. And Lynch would ultimately fail to tame Jamaica. He did send Morgan and Modiford back to England, and they spent three years in the Tower of London to placate Spain. But even there, they lived well and were treated like celebrities. And when they were released in 1675, they were invited to court, given commendations, and given new positions in Jamaica, including Morgan replacing Lynch as leader of the colony. He took the role of acting governor, if only temporarily, as well as becoming the head of the Court of Vice Admiralty. Ironically, this put him in charge of hanging many of the men that he'd previously served with, but who had refused to turn away from piracy, but he did this with no hesitation. Meanwhile, Modiford became head of the colony's courts. Both remained incredibly popular, and any governor who opposed either of them found himself ostracized, though none as much as Lynch. Both lived as heroes and leaders of the colony until their deaths, which were deeply mourned. Modiford died in 1679, and his tombstone calls him the soul and life of all Jamaica, who first made it what it now is, the best and longest governor, the most considerable planter, the ablest and most upright judge this island has ever enjoyed. Morgan's probably read similarly, but four years after his 1688 death, his grave was washed into the sea by a hurricane, along with the majority of Port Royal. And like I said, 
the two together had effectively shaped Jamaican society. When we started this series, Jamaica was little more than a place where Irish people were sent to die. No one wanted to live there, and the people who dared try faced a death rate even higher than Virginia's. Morgan's plunder had brought the money needed to change that, with hundreds of thousands or even millions of pounds flowing through Port Royal to the rest of the colony on a regular basis. And Modiford had encouraged this. For people who wanted to use this wealth to make a more legitimate living, piracy still gave them a leg up on places like Barbados. Charles II never passed import or export duties in Jamaica. No 4.5%, no tax on liquor, nothing more than quit rents. So Jamaican sugar could be sold cheaper and for a greater profit than that of Barbados or the Leewards. The Navigation Acts were impossible to enforce there, and even when a later governor noted that the avoidance of these and English mercantile policy were a motivation for piracy, the English government refused to do anything about it. And at the same time, Jamaican ports became one of the principal slave trading centers of the Western world, creating yet another income stream. Thanks to all of this, Jamaica started to overtake Barbados as England's wealthiest colony. And that brings us to the end of our Restoration Caribbean series. Barbados and Jamaica were two radically different colonies, which followed radically different paths, and which impacted the development of America as a whole in radically different ways. And next episode we'll start to see some of that American impact in our discussion of the founding of Carolinas.